Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Bruegel. I'm Karen Wilson. I'm a senior fellow here at Bruegel, and we're delighted to have you all here in our brand new, beautiful air-conditioned conference room. Um, for those of you that have been at our events previously, you might remember our tiny, squeezed, hot, uh, sauna-like conference room downstairs. So this is quite an upgrade, and we're really happy to have you all here. Um, most importantly, we're really delighted and honored to have Lord Jim O'Neill here and also Dame Sally Davies, and also to have an excellent panel here to discuss this increasingly urgent issue of AMR. And I just wanted to start by saying um, at Bruegel, we don't have uh, experts per se on healthcare. But we, of course, are very interested in the topic, uh, both on the macroeconomic side and on the microeconomic side, uh, in terms of the economic implications of healthcare and health issues, and also in things like uh, disruptive technology and the impact of digital and the, the, the opportunities uh, for digital in the healthcare uh, system. So we, this is the second uh, in a series of healthcare-related events that we've had this year, and we're hoping to have one also later in the year, potentially on healthcare outcome uh, measurement. Um, but we'll provide more details later. Anyway, so we're delighted to have an excellent lineup here today. And I wanted to start by um, welcoming uh, Jim O'Neill to present this excellent uh, uh, report that has uh, recently come out, and then we will uh, turn to the panel afterwards. Jim? Okay, thank you very much, Karen. Um, it's nice to be home. Um, <laughs> many of you probably don't know that uh, until the last uh, strange 15 months of my life, um, as a minister at least until yesterday and still at the moment in the British government, um, before that, amongst various things I, I was doing was, uh, for the preceding two years, a, a visiting uh, fellow here. Uh, and uh, actually, before that, for many, many years, since the days that Bruegel was created, I was one of the founding board members. Uh, and it is quite remarkable and beautiful and wonderful to see this new facility. So congratulations to uh, everybody at Bruegel and all your supporters. Uh, and I look forward to coming back in another 10 years and it would be double the size that it is. So let me uh, quickly get into uh, why we are here. And thank you uh, to Karen and Bruegel for hosting us. Um, so just uh, about, just over two years ago, uh, I got uh, a phone call from the chief economist of the Treasury, a guy called Dave Ramsden, probably many of you know Dave. Uh, who said to me, we have uh, an interesting challenge for you. I went, aha, what is that? And he said, we want you to lead a review into AMR. And I said, what is AMR? <laughs> and I deliberately say that because uh, part of the challenge is outside the uh, specialist world of uh, health science, uh, there are, even in the educated world, very few people that really know uh, about antimicrobial resistance. Uh, I couldn't actually pronounce antimicrobial resistance for a good few weeks after I agreed to take this task. And the reason why I was asked, uh, and a crucial part to 
solving this problem uh, is that uh, the scientific world and the medical world uh, that has known about the scale of the challenge for a long time, uh, especially since the pioneering efforts of this lady sitting to my right, Sonny Davis, who is almost definitely the single most passionate person in the planet about this challenge. Uh, despite that, uh, it's difficult to uh, translate it to policymakers around the world, uh, as well as other key participants, uh, about why something needs to happen. Uh, and the idea, uh, I think, was probably Sally's, uh, was why don't we get some international economist to lead an independent review with the memory of the Nick Stern review on climate change probably being an influence uh, to do something about this. Uh, so that's why I agreed. Uh, it is uh, probably the most interesting intellectual thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, and it's been very enjoyable for that reason, uh, but it is an enormous uh, problem. And as I said uh, to somebody last week in the UK, uh, and I'll say it here, and it's um, partly to put it in context, uh, we, I think, who are here today from the UK visiting you, remain as shocked as many other people are that our country has decided to leave the EU. But the ramifications of that, however bad they are, are not as bad as the ramification, ramifications for the world if we don't do something about this by a considerable degree. So let me uh, actually just show you a quickly a few charts. So because of my background uh, and the way I was asked, we have approached the whole of it from an economic and financial perspective. Uh, I hope you can see uh, these pictures clearly. If not, we can make sure everybody gets copies. On the left-hand side uh, is what we have projected into the future about the number of people that could die or will die if we don't do something about it. Today, there are probably about 700,000 people around the world that are dying, actually, from AMR, way more than some of the very scary things that have happened the past couple of years, such as Ebola. Uh, and the scale of the challenge and the growing resistance to uh, antimicrobials, particularly antibiotics, are such that by 2050, uh, that's going to be 10 million people around the world, more than the number of people that are dying from cancer today. I deliberately chose 2050, and again linked to why I was asked to do it, because I'm sure many of you know, printed across my forehead for the rest of my life is being Mr. Bricks. And it became famous because of this world we portrayed about 2050, so I thought we'd look at it again. Uh, the second-hand side shows you what the accumulative economic cost will be of lost potential economic growth uh, if we lose those number of people and the productivity of others. So $100 trillion over 35 years. The world economy today is probably somewhere close to 80 trillion. Uh, left to its natural devices, the world would probably treble in size, but we will lose 100 trillion of that if we don't solve this problem. And in terms of the investments to avoid it, which I'll come back to at the end, remember the 100 trillion number. 
Um, straight after that, we spent a lot of time brainstorming about uh, what were all the different issues. This picture here tries to show you uh, the 10 uh, related areas or what became our 10 point uh, commandments uh, of where we aimed our recommended solutions. Um, I will quickly uh, say what they are. Public awareness, we need to dramatically grow public awareness. I said already two and a half years ago, I didn't know what it was. Uh, many things I could say. Um, three weeks before our final review, I spoke at a Wired Health UK conference, 500 of the most technically uh, gifted people in health. One third of that audience had never heard of AMR. So can you imagine if you live in a slum in Mumbai or a favela in Brazil, you have no idea about this issue. Um, sanitation and hygiene, uh, as anybody that uh, has uh, not yet read Sally's book, one of Sally's big things is about washing hands. Uh, but if you do something, uh, and, and here AMR should be seen as key part of the sustainable health goals, of providing sanitation and clean water and hygiene, uh, that would dramatically reduce the threat. Uh, thirdly, we need to uh, stop abusing the use of antibiotics in agriculture. In the, even though in Europe there has been, a, a, at least officially, a ban for a, a use in growth promotion for, what, Sally, 11 years. Uh, that is not the case. It's one of the few areas, I often tease some of my friends in US policymaking, it's one of the few things in life where Europe is ahead of the US, or at least in principle. Uh, but of course, in China, India, and many other places, it's a huge, huge problem. Um, we need to, fourthly, we need to dramatically uh, grow the role of surveillance in many parts of the world. We have no idea uh, about how antibiotics are actually being used. And that's not just the emerging world. It includes the developed world, including many parts of Europe. Uh, we, number five, we don't have enough people that research it. Uh, it's quite striking how within uh, uh, health research, how few people study this topic and how poorly they are paid. Pretty easy thing to deal with. Six, linked to that, we have recommended the need for global uh, innovation funding. Uh, and that, along with surveillance, are, those things are already happening. Uh, we need uh, to dramatically boost the role of vaccines and alternatives, partly to replace the abuse of antibiotics. Uh, eight, we need rapid diagnostics, or what I often call Google for doctors. We walk around with these ridiculous things all day long and they completely dominate our lives, and yet our doctors guess whether we need an antibiotic or not. If you introduce state-of-the-art diagnostics, you could dramatically change that situation. Number nine, we need new drugs, and we've come up with uh, a specific mechanism for that. And then lastly, linking it all together, we need action on a global basis. So my uh, dear friends in the G20, where I used to spend quite a bit of time writing what they should do when I was linked with Bruegel, uh, and at the United Nations, and I'll perhaps touch on those quickly at the end. So uh, I've touched on the, on the 10, uh, let me quickly highlight more. Diagnostics, 
It, I, I often get asked which one of the 10 is the most important. The answer is none. But if there were one, if I only had one, I might say diagnostics. This comes from a study we found in the US that uh, shows that two-thirds of the antibiotics prescribed are probably unnecessary. And there's many other similar studies that, that show that. Uh, we uh, have got specific interventions about how you uh, change that. Uh, particularly aggressively is the second one here in the developed world. We have specifically recommended that it should become mandatory as soon as 2020 to not allow our medical practitioners to prescribe antibiotics unless it has a diagnostic technique uh, successfully approved. We deliberately do that knowing that that market is not yet financially cheaply enough available because unless you do something like that, the diagnostic VC world uh, will show no interest. Whereas if you do, it will open it up dramatically. And then very importantly, the second part of that is linked to our mechanism for getting new drugs. We strongly believe that you need some kind of globally administered diagnostic market stimulus uh, to subsidize the use in low-income countries to stop this ridiculous abuse too. Uh, there's a picture of the scale of usage in agriculture that I talked about. Uh, we have come up with a number of uh, 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 key things related to agriculture. Uh, perhaps the three most important uh, is the second one where we have specifically recommended that starting in 2018, countries should introduce uh, ambitious 10-year national targets to reduce unnecessary use. Uh, any of you from Denmark here, you perhaps will know that we have highlighted Denmark as perhaps the best example we know that if you treat this issue seriously in agriculture, you can make remarkable achievements and very importantly, not reduce your productivity. Uh, we believe that key antibiotics should be banned, possibly the much discussed colistin, which is, uh, those of you that follow this stuff, scarily in the past six months, there are some very worrying things going on about resistance to colistin, which is supposed to be a last in line antibiotic. Uh, and we need more transparency from food producers and retailers. Uh, global awareness campaign, uh, I've touched on. Uh, one of our big hopes of the UN deal uh, that we're pushing for is that that will kickstart some uh, a version of the kind of things that have happened in HIV, maybe in tobacco, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, no time to really delve into that now. I'm sure it'll come up in discussion. And then we need new drugs. Uh, at this point, I love to say that when I was asked to do this, it was presented to me primarily as what we needed to do is solve market failure and get new drugs. As important as that is, and it is something we probably spend as much time on than anything else, if you don't deal with the other issues, this will end up being irrelevant and you will just postpone it for a generation because we will get resistant to new drugs. So uh, we need a global innovation fund very proud of the fact that the British government, along with the Chinese government, have both jointly put in 50 million pounds to kickstart that. 
and there are a number of other innovation fund type things going on, which is very pleasing. And then we need these lump sum, secondly, what we call market entry rewards. Think of it as being a very large prize for the successful producer of the right new drug, uh, including for things like TB. Of the 10 million deaths, I didn't mention this earlier, that we envisage in 2050, one third of those will be in TB alone. Um, and we reckon if you pursued such a path, uh, about $16 billion over a 10-year period uh, would support uh, a new revitalized pipeline of antibiotics, which would deal with this supply problem. Uh, this is a picture of what the specific market entry reward we're proposing. This is already in discussion uh, amongst G20 Sherpas. We have some hope uh, that there will be a statement at the uh, Hangzhou G20, not agreeing the exact mechanism, but agreeing the principles and the path, uh, possibly for under the German G20 uh, presidency next year, of how you get new drugs. Uh, and of course, we need to find ways to fund it. Those of you that have followed things we've reported on and the discussion about it in the media, we'll see quite a lot of attention about one uh, part of this, which is the second paragraph, so-called pay or play. That is one of many or a number of ways that the money can be uh, raised. It could be through existing financial institutions, uh, taxing uh, agriculture, uh, taxing all of us, uh, or we could encourage uh, the pharmaceutical industry to think about if you are prepared to do this, you will benefit through this reward, but if you are not, uh, you may have to pay some kind of surcharge in order to raise the money for those uh, that are prepared to. All of this, I emphasize, is for policymakers to decide. Uh, our review was an independent review that simply came up with a series of recommendations. Uh, and they were all features of our final report. Uh, where we are right now is we sort of still exist. Uh, I might be rather more hopeful of its existence if I lose my ministerial job in the next couple of days. Uh, although, actually, I would still love it to exist because it is a very nice distraction to my day job. Uh, but most importantly, uh, the team, along with key other policymakers, uh, including Sally, uh, are spending a lot of time pushing for uh, some kind of G20 agreement on September the 4th, 5th, and a high-level agreement uh, at the UN, which we actually know will be on the 21st of September, but we don't know what exactly will be in it. And then most importantly, some kind of uh, thing in order to make sure momentum from it continues uh, from that UN agreement. So that's a quick snapshot, Karen. Thank you so much for giving me the chance to come along uh, to give you a flavor of it, and let me stop there. Thank you very much. Jim, uh, fantastic. Uh, congratulations not only on an excellent report, but also on the action plan that's been put in place. I think that's the most important part. There are a lot of great reports out there, but you've actually catalyze global action that's desperately needed in this area. So really, uh, kudos. Um, I now would like to pass it over to the excellent panel that we have. I'll briefly introduce the panel, and then I'll turn it over to our chair. 
Uh, we have Sally Davies, she's Chief Medical Officer for England. Again, delighted to have uh, Dame Sally Davis here. Uh, we have uh, Chuck uh, Nurst on the far end over here. He's Vice President, Therapeutic Vaccine Program Lead, uh, Vaccine Clinical Research and Development at Pfizer. Delighted to have you here, Chuck, thank you. Um, we also have Xavier Pratz-Monet. He's the Director General, DG Health and Food Safety at the European Commission. Xavier uh, is a regular here at Bruegel, so welcome again. We're delighted to have you here. And uh, uh, on my left, we have uh, James Anderson. He's the head of corporate uh, government affairs at GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, so Sally, I turn to you. Between us, we get there. Thank you. So I think Jim has laid this out very effectively and clearly we have an issue that crosses from health into agriculture, animal husbandry, fish farming, the food chain, and increasingly we're realizing the environment because of the contamination of the environment. Antibiotics are not broken down by human or animal bodies much and they just go out into the environment. And so we have big problems. And if we don't get this right and we end up with all those deaths, this will impact on our economies, as Jim has shown you. But I can tell you from Britain at the moment that for every case of serious AMR we have, it doubles the mortality and it doubles the hospital costs. So this is already a problem. And if we don't solve it, it means that we will lose what I call modern medicine because infections are a risk with much of modern medicine, and we need to be able to treat them. So we use antibiotics to cover surgery, new joints in old people. We new, use them to look after patients with cancer during treatment and actually palliation towards the end of life. All of that would become more life-threatening, more difficult, let alone transplants and, and other high-tech modern. Indeed, if we go back to a pre-antibiotic era, 40% of people will die from infections. So this is an unpleasant scenario, and we all have to solve it. And I think that economic perspective is very important. And key to it is the private sector. So let's start with our two private sector people who are each going to talk to this subject for five minutes. I'll start with James and then go to Charles. Thank you. Thank you very much, and I'm delighted to be here uh, representing GSK and the, a little bit the private sector beyond that. I wanted to start by saying when I got on the train this morning in London, <clears throat> I actually brought some bacteria here with me, about 40 trillion of them, in fact, and actually each one of us carries roughly that number around uh, all the time. Somebody has, in fact, estimated that there are 5 times 10 to the power of 30 bacteria in the world. That's an extraordinary number. I can't get my head around it at all. Jim might be able to, uh, but <clears throat> it requires an economist uh, training. The point is, they've evolved to live in under the ice in the Arctic. They live in volcanic conditions. They live in the bottoms, the deep, you know, deepest parts of the ocean and everywhere else in between, the driest deserts. So they, bacteria are immensely clever and we shouldn't underestimate power of evolution uh, within that massive number. So it's not surprising they can quite rapidly evolve in the scheme of 
two billion years of existence, to, uh, to resist any chemicals that we throw at them. And that's what happens with resistance. So it's clear that we are facing a massive scientific challenge um, that's not going to go away. We will always need new drugs and new tools to, to combat that. The private sector and, and, and um, the pharma industry in particular, GSK, we fully uh, agree with the 10 recommendations that Jim just outlined. Though if we are able, as a global society, involving many different parts of this ecosystem to implement those and to really drive them forward with a long-term sustainable model, that's going to make a huge difference. It may not completely solve it, but it's probably the best that we can do. So that's the target. It's ambitious, it's broad, it's multifaceted. The private sector has a role to play in many of those recommendations, prevention, vaccination, sanitation, uh, the environmental piece Sally mentioned. But for sure, the pharma industry's key role is developing new antibiotics and vaccines, uh, specifically to treat resistant infections. That has an, a number of unique challenges over and above the challenges you see in developing normal medicines. I'll give you uh, two very quick examples to finish up my, uh, my, my introduction. Um, but one that GSK was developing a very novel uh, medicine to treat resistant infections. And before we'd even tested it beyond 100, uh, a few hundred patients, so in the kind of middle stages, we started to see resistance emerging already. So sadly, we had to stop that one and move on to other chemicals and, and kind of start again. That's the sort of challenge that you see in this area, scientifically, that you don't see elsewhere. Our late stage product, which is another uh, novel new class, new mechanism of action to treat resistant infections. We've been working on this target for about 18 years so far, and it is now entering into the final stages and we're hopeful, but there's certainly no guarantees that that will come through. All that requires dedicated scientists, significant amounts of money and significant amounts of patience. And that's part of the package that Jim has just put forward that we'll no doubt discuss later. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. So, um, uh, James, I'm going to push you later about play or pay, but um, we'll wait for that. Charles, would you like to talk? I'd also like to thank Karen and Bruegel for inviting me to be panelists and to engage in this, uh, this discussion. I was very pleased also to hear Lord O'Neill say that this is the most interesting work that he's done in his career, and actually that's what led me to become an infectious disease physician in the first place. Um, and we welcome as well the O'Neill-led AMR analysis and findings, and you know, the ID community has been working this for quite a long time, but I think bringing it now to the public policy stage um, has been a real seminal achievement of your work, so congratulations. Um, EU policy leadership in any effect is actually has been ahead of, of that in the U.S. In the Swedish presidency uh, in 2009, in, in a very successful meeting in Stockholm, uh, policy folk, uh, public health officials, and a couple of us uh, from the private sector that were still had, had very active antibacterial um, uh, programs were invited to, you know, uh, get together in that debate. And one of the very specific outcomes of that meeting was actually the initiative through IMI, which is the New Drugs for Bad Bugs, which spans work going from very basic discovery work all the way to some of the new economic models. So I think that this has been, uh, you know, very promising. 
But just going in sort of, you know, making this a little bit more, you know, uh, personal, antibacterial R&D is very, very difficult work. R&D in, in general, but there are some very specific issues in antibacterial R&D that are very challenging. And I think one of the problems, I mean, you, you did highlight in your report infectious disease physicians are, are needed, but I think it goes back much farther than that so that we are actually attracting university students and some of the most creative minds at that stage to become basic microbiologists. And for those people, when they make that choice, that then see a pathway in a career of 10 years that you know, can be sustainably funded through from grants from the public sector. It really does start there in the laboratories. I'd just like to talk a little bit about, in R&D, what we talk about, uh, which is you know, breaking science. Um, because just committing resources, financial, human, to a problem does not lead to success. Um, we have to follow the science. And right now, most of you probably heard quite a bit about the, the checkpoint inhibitors being used in immuno-oncology. These literally take the breaks off the, the T-cell immunity. And right now, one of the areas in melanoma, which was hopeless. If you had melanoma five years ago, you, you pro and it was at a certain level of thickness in the skin, you probably wouldn't you know, live a year. That's now no longer true with the checkpoint inhibitors. I actually dream, being an infectious disease uh, physician, that we can maybe turn the checkpoint inhibitors, maybe with, with, with a profile that's a little bit different to some of the more intractable uh, infections, like tuberculosis, for instance. Um, and also chronic viral infections like HIV. So we can suppress viral loads in HIV, but we really can't cure HIV without a bone marrow transplant, and that's not accessible to just a handful of people. So just a little flavor of, of R&D. Um, we've certainly witnessed firsthand at Pfizer, and, and GSK has published very you know, uh, good articles um, on, on some of the difficulties, uh, specifically in antibacterial R&D. And I look back to when we were doing the, the clinical program on the last new antibiotic, this was in the 1990s that it was discovered, it's from the oxalidinone class named linazolid, that really has come in uh, as, a, as a new class. And, and we knew at that time, uh, both from what we were seeing in the clinic, but also from uh, some of the, the, the surveillance trends coming from hospitals, that gram-negative uh, pathogens were going to become the, the, the next area of major concern. They're a little less aggressive and a little less pathogenic. But nonetheless, we knew by selecting and tr adequately treating gram-positive that they would then be opportunistic and move into causing problems. Um, we put teams together, you know, at least 200 people from uh, <laughs> microbiologists to biochemists to, to, to chemists together, and for a decade worked in gram-negatives. And for a while, we, we, we went down the pathway of three completely novel series of compounds. And so our medicinal chemists, there are a handful in the industry. These are our true artists that, that understand chemistry and structure and what the activity will be. Um, and so from this, we developed three series. Um, we then take a brute force approach to it with combinatorial chemistry. So we'll synthesize tens of thousands of molecules, constantly trying to decrease any toxicity while optimizing the activity against the, the bug of, of target. And in that process, we, we hope to come up with something that is meaningful in the clinic. After 10 years working on three very novel, including a colistin line, we did some chemistry on colistin, we were unable to enter the, the clinic uh, with any of these series. Around the same time, though, uh, we developed uh, some novel ways of conjugating polysaccharides with proteins and took a vaccine approach, at the same time making large molecules, so monoclonals, to have direct activity. And this led us down a different pathway which was conjugated vaccines, and also the, the two vaccines that now we have in phase two, three development, 
one against Staphylococcus aureus, that's a tongue twister, and Clostridium difficile. And these are two of the most common and threatening pathogens in the hospital today. So just a, an example of how we change platforms where we were not having a lot of success, jump on breaking science, and then follow that pathway and hopefully be part of the, the solution. So I think, you know, ha being an advocate for anti-infectives within the company I'm in, um, as well as having responsibility in other therapeutic areas, uh, we have been part of uh, trying to fix a complete market failure. And I'm glad that much of this was addressed um, in the, in the O'Neill report. And certainly in, in the dialogue I'm having with our policy people at Pfizer, we do believe in, in you know, complementary and maybe some, somewhat different incentives that would help us, at least sort of in, within the companies, uh, have an equal hand in, in discussing where to allocate our resources to, you know, triple negative breast cancer, for instance, uh, ovarian cancer, some of the cancers that are still really not within reach of, of modern therapeutics, working on Alzheimer's disease. These are, you know, when, when we have broad scientific platforms and we're following the science, it is competitive within our companies. So, you know, we think that things, you know, and, and particularly are respectful that different regulatory and economic jurisdictions will have different ways of, of customizing this. And I think that, you know, for instance, the orphan drug uh, legislation in both Europe and the U.S. Has, in the last you know, couple of years have led to almost half of the new uh, uh, molecules and medicines that have been approved. So legislation is, is, is very powerful. Incentives are very powerful if properly placed. We think there is hope. Uh, you know, with the president, uh, uh, the PCAS Council in the U.S. that advises President Obama, that a transferal exclusivity um, uh, voucher is gaining momentum. Obviously, it has to be uh, uh, evaluated further. I could really take that back within, uh, you know, our, our company. I'm sure that's true of most of the other companies, and argue that this now, you know, allows us to take very risky investments um, and extending our platforms uh, in, in anti-infective research. So just when I, when I look back at a talk I gave about four years ago at the Clinical Trial Transformation Initiative, and I, I was a little down on, on, on the prospects for antibacterial research at that time. I had a slide that I was pushed to uh, uh, optimize and, and, and be more provocative by the current head of the, the Food and Drug Administration, uh, and I called it simple substance steps now. And simple maybe was tongue-in-cheek because, it, you know, none of this is, is very simple. But I have a lot of optimism that at least on the regulatory front right now, both the EMA and the FDA have actually held very significant discussions in, in, in a large tent, deliberative uh, way to make regulatory pathways much more certain today than, say, they were five and ten years ago. That's all great. Clinical trial infrastructure is on the drawing board um, and to be revitalized. Another uh, finding in the O'Neill report that, it, that is uh, absolutely essential. And I think it then comes to the incentive models, just, just wrapping up the, in a second, the incentive models that I think really could make a difference and, and, and deliver on the number of new antibacterials. You know, I think finally, the, the pharmaceutical industry um, already does and commits significant resources uh, to anti-infectives. And I think really with, with proper incentives put in place to address a market failure that we can go above and beyond where we are right now. And thank you for these few minutes. Thank you. So just to let you know, under Japan as G7, the regulators will be meeting together under the chairmanship of EMA with RMHRA, FDA, and the Japanese one, having another look at bringing all of that together. 
So um, I'm going to hand over to the Director General, um, Prats Money, and I do want to put on record how proud you should feel here at the Commission for working with member countries and leading as a region. But you and I know there's lots more to do. Uh, thank you, thank you, uh, Sally, thank you, Jim, colleagues, and Karen. Well, you know, I'm sure that, you know, most of us do come across reports on, on, on very important topics uh, very often. We, we sometimes come across a report that is actually very compelling and very focused on, on policy advice. And very rarely we come across a report that actually comes up with a topic that is grossly understated. What we never come across, actually I never had come across before, is a report on all three. That is extraordinarily focused on a key topic with very compelling evidence and policy recommendations on an issue that is grossly understated in policy, by policymakers. This is, and I don't need to, I need to say more, this is what makes the O'Neill review critically important. I'd like to make three comments from my perspective, from, from my own AMR what moment, which I did have also when I, when I was appointed Director General for Health and Food Safety in, in September. Uh, three issues that really came to me very strongly and that are actually very closely related to this report. The first is about economics. I, I, I had to think, what would be my other value in the Santé? I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a medical doctor, I'm not even a veterinarian. I think my other value is to try to speak about health in a way a finance minister understands. This is, of course, very important, because while, of course, health is an area where the EU has no regulatory powers, and that should be very clear to all, because otherwise we'll go into a sterile debate on powers and competencies. We will not be doing pricing policy. But the fact that we do not have regulatory competence doesn't mean we cannot be useful. And the fact that we cannot tell countries what to do in the field of health doesn't mean we shouldn't tell them how they are doing. And therefore, the, I think that perhaps the most compelling merit of this report is that it looks at an issue that is critical for human health, for veterinary medicine, from the perspective of macroeconomic. I, I had never seen something like, for example, a quantification of cesarean operations. A cesarean operation is the best example of uh, what health economists call an avoidable death. Actually, they should call it a stupid death because nobody should die on perinatal causes. And everybody knows this, nobody knows how important it is, how this could disappear, and how much it costs for our economy. So this is really the first point that I think is critically important in this report. The second is that I had also to ask myself, what is the Commission going to do in the field of health? Because the Juncker Commission, let's not forget, is extremely focused on the Commission doing only, acting only when there is EU other value, defined as acting in areas where the EU has to act because countries cannot act by themselves and reach their objectives. And here I have to stop for a moment to say that indeed, I mean, the, the O'Neill review, this is not a criticism, the review doesn't actually cover EU matters. This is because I'm sure it's a global report, it looks at the global scene. But of course that doesn't mean that the EU has not something to say. As a matter of fact, we only need to go and look, and please do that, go and look at the council conclusions of the Ministers of Health on the 17th of June to see the wealth of things that member states alone with the Commission, the Commission alone and Commission and Member States in the global scene can do to promote the challenges that, that to address the challenges that the only report raises. Um, 
I think that well, we have a good basis. Let me say very briefly, I'm sorry, I will try not to be as long-winded as you are accustomed to hear commission officials. We have, we have, we have a, 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 a new action plan on anti-microbial resistance that expires this year. We're just about to come up with the assessment, the external evaluation. It says something very simple. It's fine, it's good, but not to the level and the scope of the challenge we have now. And I think we have very good grounds to act on three areas. First, the EU has a best practice region on antimicrobial resistance. Now, does this mean, well, in some areas we are a best practice region, for example, on the use of antibiotics for growth purposes in animals. In some areas we can become more of a best practice region, for example, if we are serious on using veterinary legislation, the veterinary medicines legislation, for the purpose of stronger surveillance, monitoring, assessment, measuring of use of antibiotics, prudent use of antibiotics. We can provide guidance on use of antibiotics in human medicine as we've done for veterinary medicine. There's a wealth of things we could do. We already posted this on our website. There's a few things we are thinking about on this first area. The second, of course, is innovation and research. Jim put it very nicely. If he had to choose, difficult as it would be, between the 10 recommendations, it would be diagnostics. That gives us the, the sign that research is very important, but not necessarily research on new antibiotics. It's not that that pipeline is dry, but it will not save us. I would have thought, and allow me here to say a few words then about pharma, I would have thought that there is a real risk on focusing efforts just on milking the cow of EU public funding for research on new antibiotics. This has to be done, but it's not the only thing we should be doing. So research is the second area. And the third area is to try to support modestly, with our own means, what the EU can do to influence the global scene. Most obvious example, WHO, there's a global action plan. Members of the WHO, including the EU, have committed themselves to national plans. We can help make those plans not just reliable, not just measurable, but also uh, a yardstick for other countries. So there's a number of things we can do. The Commission politically has not taken the decision yet of how important the issue of AMR should be in the agenda of the Commission. I do hope that the final result, also thanks to the O'Neill report review, will be that this, yes, is an area that is not just important. There are many things that are important that EU should not be doing. On this area, we should be doing also too. Let me use, please, two minutes on the third issue that actually has really shocked me. The only thing that actually has shocked me since I took up a new job, which is how damn difficult it has become to make policy on the basis of evidence. This is something that I believe is really, really what will give us the key to success or failure of the Amy, of the O'Neill review, but also anything else you want to do as modern societies. We've come to a point, and I feel this very strongly, not so much in the field of health, although there too, look at vaccines, but especially in the field of food safety, where the opinion of Mr. Robert De Niro, much as I admire him as an actor, counts as much as the US National Academy of Sciences on vaccines. That is not good for our societies. I think that we really have to think about how not the EU, we don't have the legitimacy, certainly, not to do this by ourselves, but how the international community, how Europe, how Europe's scientific community, uh, uh, Sally, can actually do more to make sure that we make policy on the basis of informed evidence. Which brings me to pharma. What we heard from our two colleagues in pharma, I think, is very right, but I would like to make another general point. I think pharma is at the risk of becoming like tobacco a sector where people by default assume that what comes out of there is not legitimate, not fair, not transparent, not in the interest of public service. This is wrong, but it's a real risk, and I think it should be addressed. And the simple point I wanted to make for the discussion is that pharma sector cannot have it both ways. 
It cannot say that its interest is the interest of its stakeholders, and at the same time, the medicines are more than just another product. This balance between medicines as a public good and the legitimate interest of companies in the field of healthcare is also a key for being successful in a strong, credible public-private partnership to solve the problems of antimicrobial resistance. We in the Commission will try modestly, I mean very modestly, to help, but I do think that there is an EU added value in the field of AMR and we'll do whatever we can to show that this is the case and help. Thanks. Thank you, um, Xavier. That uh, was music to our ears, of course. And I do think you have a lot to be proud of, but we have a long journey. I'm going to open this discussion up, but I want to first ask uh, Ursula, and I have problems always, Thurit Batcher, anyway, Ursula leads an IMI project called Drive AB that's been doing some fabulous work. A couple of minutes comment, Ursula. Uh, thank you very much, Sally. My name is really difficult. It's Teuretzbacher. <laughs> um, so I'm here as representative of Drive AB. Um, that's one of the programs of the IMI uh, New Drugs for Bad Bugs programs. And we have been uh, working closely with the O'Neill report. And we agree uh, on most of the recommendations uh, in this report. So here I would like just to make a few comments. Um, we took into account uh, uh, many more aspects and especially also the social uh, aspects. So we are not coming only from the economic uh, point of view. Um, we researched the pipelines and the entire environment uh, of, of this area and uh, found that um, uh, the pipelines are not dry. There are lots of drugs in the pipelines. And in the uh, next uh, about five years, so if you're looking at phase two, phase three uh, drugs, will have um, in the gram-positive area a lot of drugs coming up. So at least 13 drugs for just skin infections, uh, seven drugs for community-acquired pneumonia, and most of them are um, uh, modifications of old drugs. In the, but some are also new classes. In the gram-negative area, it's really difficult um, because we are having mainly modified drugs of um, uh, known classes. So a main question, I think, is um, does the public want to spend a lot of money um, for, for these kind of drugs? Or do we need to focus uh, more on the research questions and discovery of, of really new classes to prevent very uh, fast uh, uh, development of resistance? And if we get such new drugs, um, don't we need to tie them more to um, um, policies that make sure that it's sustainable and that go beyond responsible use? So really very, very uh, tight uh, controls. Um, the second very uh, fast uh, comment is, um, it's not just big pharma companies that are in this field. There are really just four right now that are in, in drug discovery. And most work in this area is done by small companies. And I think we need to focus our policies also on these players 
as well as university centres that are doing a lot of work. Thank you, Ursula, and for being um, concise. So while you're all thinking up your questions, I'm going to ask Jim to respond to the four comments. So uh, let me just say a couple of things. Uh, as an overriding collective thing uh, that I often say when I have this chance, um, it is, it is, well, first of all, it's wonderful to see so many people uh, at Bruegel for this uh, topic. And it's always nice to hear everybody um, suggesting what, what they are doing to uh, respond to this challenge. But my comment is that we would not have the risk of this future if everybody was doing enough. So for any of you that have some specific responsibility of part of your job, or actually all of you, because all seven billion of us around the world can do something about it, do something different than what you had in your head before you came in this discussion, whether it be a pharmaceutical company, uh, whether it be uh, a researcher, whether it be an agricultural producer or a food producer, or actually all of you as individuals, we need to stop treating these things like sweets or candy if you are American. Um, so that would be my overriding comment. Against that background, I'm, I, and I apologize in advance, but I cannot resist taking up uh, the, the latter comments of, of Xavier's, which was so nice to hear. Uh, many of you know also, I come from uh, the financial services industry, which uh, went through a pretty devastating car crash uh, and is still living with the consequences of that. And if the pharmaceutical industry does not start to think a lot more creatively, I can see many things coming the same way. Uh, and uh, whilst I'm, uh, it's, let me, I want to come back to what, to emphasize this point again, it is not the only thing, in fact, far from it, uh, to solve this problem. Um, we need new drugs and we need new ways of thinking about it rather than just the pharma industry getting a very generous uh, donation from global policy making. Um, and I, I you know, if, look at the, look at the flavor of what's just happened in the UK, look what our new prime minister said on Monday, specifically about how corporations should behave. And it's the same sort of thing. Um, now, having said that, I, let me also I want to emphasize how fantastic the response of everybody is being to our review, including uh, in particular from the pharmaceutical world where we have such uh, collaborative efforts. And it isn't the only thing uh, that's important. There, there are other things that are crucial too, including uh, policymakers. Um, that have a tendency in so many walks of life as defaulting to the lowest common denominator. Uh, and of course, particularly when it comes to this, this issue, which is, uh, can be seen as a sort of North versus South classic issue, uh, somehow we, and hopefully with the path we're going through, and I hear Charlie, I think the EU can play a really important role. Uh, we need to make sure that this actually is a problem that doesn't distinguish between whether you're black or white or rich or poor. It, it affects everybody. 
which requires policymakers to also think a little bit differently uh, to solve this than is typically the case about many other standard economic challenges. Thank you. So we have about half an hour for a discussion. I'll take questions in threes and put them to the panel. If you could say your name and where you come from, that would be very helpful. So there's a gentleman there first, then this gentleman second, and a gentleman there, and then we'll come back. Yep. Uh, good afternoon. Um, my question is directed to Xavier. Um, it, my name's Richard Price. I'm with the European Association of Hospital Pharmacists. Um, I think, as you mentioned, many of the activities that the EU is doing on antimicrobial resistance is highly laudable in some areas, veterinary uh, use and also uh, in improving the research environment, but there are other areas where there's scope for more work. Um, from our perspective, the issue of prudent use in the human sector, is, it, prudent, prudent use in the human sector is an area where maybe much more could be done. Um, and I understand some guidelines may be on the way. Could I urge uh, that you please don't be shy with those guidelines? Um, I know you, you say you feel there's a low mandate for the EU in, this, in, in health, but I think when it's a cross-border health threat, surely there is a mandate. And um, perhaps we could have some definition of healthcare professional roles within those guidelines. Thank you, gentlemen here. Uh, thank you. I'm Professor Linson from the MNRC Newport Network. Uh, I've trained as a physician and specialize in neurosciences. Um, I guess we are also here to try to find solutions. So, um, yes, Xavier, you mentioned innovation and research, but uh, of fundamental importance before innovation and research is, of course, education. Because to innovate, you first need to innovate education. And regarding education, well, uh, allow me to uh, explain what I mean. Our medical expression of interest, one of our medical expression of interest is the physics of life and the nutri-neuroimmunoendocrine system, an integrated interdisciplinary understanding of diseases and healing potential in the human being explored using novel approaches to therapy. Now, by applying the principles of this EOI and questioning evidence-based medicine, so I didn't make friends everywhere, but I'm used to that, uh, we were able to find a, su a successful and innovative treatment for invasive bladder cancer in the elderly that waived the need for radical cystectomy or six-week intensive radiotherapy, uh, a team I led with St. Jean Hospital in Brussels. Now, um, I've been trying to introduce um, this holistic approach to medicine and the patients in medical schools, trying to introduce a course, an advanced course in nutri-neuroimmunoendocrinology. No way. Uh, yeah, I, I, I should finish. Uh, extremely difficult. The uh, medical training is still terribly fragmented. Lastly, I agree with um, Jim, the need for an international uh, coalition collaboration. It is important to realize that we are faced with a global network of interconnected global challenges that can only be appropriately managed by first setting up a new global governance infrastructure. This is also valid for antimicrobial uh, resistance. Thank you. Thank you. Um, gentleman down there. Thank you. Um, Mark Johnson from MSD. Uh, this is primarily directed at James, who, for the benefit of those in the room, he's also the AVPI chair of the Antibiotic Network, and he's proven a very effective one at that. Um, James has led us in conversations with the UK government on a number of new models for reimbursement. Um, and it's great that we're all on the same page um, and in agreement. 
Um, however, there's been a number of models proposed um, through that forum, through DriveAB, and through the O'Neill report. Uh, the common denominator of, of, across all of those reimbursement models is how do you value an antibiotic? Um, which I suppose my question is, do you agree, James, that's still a major hurdle and challenge, and do we need to be talking about that a little bit more? Thank you. Thank you. So um, I'm going to uh, start, I think, with Xavier, who could address the first two. Then um, James and Jim may want to come in on value. This uh, issue of prudent use uh, is a very, a very good example of what we can do under which conditions. Uh, we already are working, as you, I'm sure you know from, from your statement, that we're working on guidance to member states on prudent use of antibiotics in human health. That would be the easy part. The more difficult part would be the take of, the, of that. So it would depend a lot on whether we manage to convince member states that this guidance is not compulsory, that this is not binding, but it is actually useful since they are the ones who will actually have endorsed it. And then indeed the professions, because there I think there's a lot that we could do more with the regulated profession, the association of doctors, but also nurses, as to how this guidance can actually be useful on the ground. And then we can do something very simple, which is that there is, I think, a very good difference between, so, you know, between uh, uh, let's say, prescriptive action, which we cannot do in the field of health, and nice exchange of success stories. There's a very wide range that we should not let unbridge, and I think the meeting point there is peer review. We have to go from simple exchange of best practice on whatever an expert fancies they want to share into something that is actually focused on real challenges by a few countries that can learn from each other and then commit themselves to act on what they have learned. I think that here there's a real scope for added value. May I mention one other point that is a sore point for me? We have seen a great level of, of uh, commitment and Dame uh, Sally David was there at a joint ministerial meeting, Ministers of Agriculture and Health, who made a strong statement on antimicrobial resistance and yet we see every day at the council with meeting of experts that there is no progress. There is a huge distance between the political commitment at political level and the actions on the ground, partly because they are vested interests and partly because AMR is spread across too many departments, ministries, responsibilities, and that's the perfect recipe so that somebody doesn't take responsibility and nobody does anything. We have to break that, and I think that I hope, actually, that the, one of the merits of the review is to make a compelling case for actually doing something instead of just talking about it. Lastly, and education and training, yes, absolutely. I, I, I just think that we have to be more serious. We, Commission, certainly member states too, in uh, uh, accepting a trade-off. We don't force people to do things, but when we have something that is interesting, members, uh, member states have to be forced to look, take, I mean, uh, and act on it uh, voluntarily. So I think that there, if we are assertive enough, we can do more. What is still a question mark uh, is to what extent the Commission politically would be willing to make this a key issue for the future. That is still not answered. So. Thank you, Xavier. Over to you. Um, do you want to talk about value of medicines? And they'll be different in different countries. Absolutely. And, and also, I think, and, uh, to Ursula's point, there, there's no single approach to valuing an antibiotic, actually. So that makes it even harder. So how... how we're thinking about value, and I think in the UK and actually in Sweden, the, these discussions are moving ahead quite nicely. In a number of other countries, they're happening, but at earlier stages. We have to agree a framework that's different for antibiotics than it is for any other medicine. That's the first thing. So we need to have, and that framework needs to be agreed between 
a group of companies and the right people in the, the governments in those countries. Um, the reason for that is that the value that antibiotics provide is different. Sim the simple reason because an, a new antibiotic when it's launched, even if it's the best antibiotic that there's ever been, shouldn't be used very much by and large, right? Because otherwise the resistance will build up to that one as well. So in the extreme case, it actually shouldn't be used at all. So there you have a very different source of value to uh, any other medicine where if it's the best one, it should be used as much as possible by and large. So, so I think, I mean, the, la the last point I'll say in the UK how we're doing it is w for a product where we can see already patients who are resistant to almost all current antibiotics, you at least have a starting point there to say what's the value that a new product provides to those patients who would be in quite serious uh, trouble otherwise, and then you can construct a model in a much more collaborative way than you would, um, again, normally. Where in the UK discussions, we haven't yet got onto the harder question of where you've got a new product that will treat resistant infections that haven't yet materialized, or even you're developing such a product to treat resistance of the future. That remains a, a very important challenge, and that's part of what I think the, the market entry rewards that, that Jim is proposing is getting at explicitly. Um, three quick things. First of all, it's my perception on having so many of these discussions uh, or, or more specific ones with uh, produ pharma producers and uh, US policymakers. I, I think there's a, a indeed a focus towards actually the overall collective value as opposed to the standard way of thinking of, of price and volume uh, and something that's become known as uh, Davos Declaration which the farmer will beautifully uh, uh, drove for themselves. I think there was some implicit recognition about limiting the amount of uh, sales, which would of course make it very different than many other things that the farmer will do. And that's, uh, uh, and on a recent trip we were spent in Washington with policymakers, we heard quite a bit of policy advisors starting to think that way too, which was really refreshing. Secondly, however, it goes without saying that within that, uh, how, you, how you approach different income levels of users specifically, of course, with the emerging world, has to be so different uh, than the, the rich world. Uh, and it's very, I'm going to highlight what GSK uh, has done through the very imaginative leadership of Andrew Whitty in terms of trying to create the notion of a, a very different model for GSK's uh, sales business in general in the emerging world, which is the sort of thing which is needed across the board. Because in the emerging world, and it's something that's influenced me a lot, it's not excess, it's access. And, and it, you know, the collective slogan really is, is access, not excess. Uh, and then the, the, the uh, we just heard it really that this is this is all of this is why it's influenced us about the market entry reward which by the way is not designed just for big pharma it's designed for anybody 
including uh, startup VCs if they can grow enough to to have the capability of bringing things uh, to the scale that would be necessary. Uh, and also it is valid for diagnostics producers uh, in the emerging world and it's valid for, for alternatives um, uh, to uh, traditional antibiotics too. Thank you. We really do believe about access and recognize that more people die of lack of access than of excess and, and drug-resistant infections at the moment. But we, we want to increase access and we will have to have things like tiered pricing while we address this present problem that is a threat to be much worse. So further questions or comments? The first will be here, the second there. All right, over to you at the moment. Thank you, it's for gender inequality now. <laughs> um, I have a question on economics, and I, I suppose the best person to answer would be Jim. I was wondering why the pharmaceutical company should be interested in doing something on this topic, right? The only kind of hypothesis that I came in my head in this few minutes reflection was that they should do something about it because if they don't, we all die and they have nobody to sell medicine to. But I suppose um, there is a better and more, more kind of a better answer to that. Would you please <laughs> be able to answer that one? Thank you. Hi, I'm Sasha Marshang of the European Public Health Alliance. Thank you very much for your very interesting presentations, contributions. Um, I wanted to return to the fact that the UK review report does not talk about a specific European role. There are obviously some references to the IMI and to the joint programming initiative, but thinking about action at the global level, G20 and UN, that to me sounds like it might take a lot of time for this action actually to kick in. And um, we may not have the time to wait for that long. So I was wondering, you know, do you, do you not foresee a specific role for the EU in this? And, and how do you feel about the council conclusions, for example? That'd be one part of the question. And I also have a slightly different one for the two pharma representatives. And this is about the, um, I mentioned it to you already before the event, it's about um, responsible sourcing of uh, active uh, antibiotic ingredients and, and also waste disposal. And I wanted to know what your companies are doing to, to, to act res environmentally responsible way. Thank you. So we do have three questions, actually. So, Jim, over to you for the first. Um, why would they do it? I think part of the, the you answered it yourself partially. Um, I, I, something I learned uh, during the chaos uh, of the noughties, late noughties was enlightened self-interest. Uh, if the major leading international institutions would have thought more about enlightened self-interest, certain aspects of the crash might not, certainly wouldn't have been as severe as they were. And uh, the, in my opinion, the underlying problem was the the lower level of a domestic savings ratio in the US. So I wouldn't go as far as saying it wouldn't have happened, uh, but it would have been considerably less traumatic if leadership of the top financial institutions thought more carefully than what their next quarterly P&L was gonna be. Um, and, and so 
I think they sh they need to show the enlightened self-interest uh, issue uh, in a couple of ways. One of which you rather scarily, beautifully highlighted. But the second one is more more specific: is that um, as we go down down this path, um, there are certain things that the pharmaceutical world earns very considerable revenues from that will become useless. Uh, unless we get new effective antibiotics. And it quite often surprises me that the pharma world doesn't think that way. Uh, let me translate it back into my own old specific life at GS. One of the main reasons why GS considered going public back in 99 is because big US, uh, primarily some European banks, were using their balance sheet to uh, underprice lend, um, lending to buy uh, high revenue M&A um, transactions. And so they, they've, even despite all the problems that industry had done, it had figured out how to merge the return on capital from different product lines. Seems to me the pharma industry, for some strange reason, isn't doing that. Because you're not, the, the current thing is oncology and all these remarkably useful, really important useful things, but they can get enormous revenue streams from. If we don't do something, none of those revenue streams are going to be there for them. And I, I find it kind of odd that they don't think about that more. So let me tell you the story. I met a chief executive of a major pharma company a few months ago, and he said, no, no, we don't need to do antibiotics. We'll leave it for the other people. We do anti-cancer drugs. And I said, hmm, so when I get cancer and go to my oncologist, he's going to say, well, Sally, we could treat you, but it'll damage your immune system temporarily, and you're pretty likely to get an infection. And then we may not have an antibiotic to cure you with. So you could be disfigured or die as a result. So your choice is some nasty treatment and then maybe a horrid death. Or your bucket list, if you know the film, go and have some fun and some palliation, and you might live longer. And he looked at me and said, I'd never thought of it that way. And I said, well, it's about time you did, because we are moving in, in the north to a, to a scenario where that becomes a real possibility if you look at the deaths. So that's what enlightened self-interest is. You won't be selling your cancer drugs to a lot of people when when you think of the impact. Let's talk about waste disposal a bit. Let's ask the two pharma companies to address Sasha's problem on that. So, James. Actually, before you do, let me tell you, that's a terribly important question. There's some data in India showing that ciprofloxacin levels in the Ganges on a day when tested were the same level we aim for in the blood. There's data from runoff from intensive farms and from... Um, high-using hospitals where they haven't got good sewage to show contamination of the environment, including the runoff into rivers and things, that is really dreadful. So you've raised, as you know, a very important issue. And so we are moving beyond talking about tripartite working of um, WHO with the Food and Agriculture Organization and the Organization for Animal Health in Paris to bringing in the UN Environment Agency, and they will be a big player at the UN high-level meeting on September 21st. But over to you, James. Thanks. No, so I, I, like, I absolutely agree. So uh, th th there can be no 
excuse for companies who are... I, I think if you look at the big Western companies, I, I would hope none of them are have factories that are directly discharging uh, waste antibiotic, number one. But where do you buy your active Correct. ingredients from? So all big companies have complicated global supply chains exactly to, to that point. So certainly what GSK is doing is backwards auditing all the way down our supply chain right now. This is a current thing. It's been flagged by Jim, by Sally, by others, and we, we get it. We're doing it. By the end of the year, we will have worked all the way down what can be a multi-layer uh, supply chain in terms of suppliers and then their suppliers. And so we will, we will know very clearly where we are by the end of the year. And that obviously is where you have to start from. It's, I, I don't know what we'll find, frankly, uh, or therefore how long it will take to be resolved, but it's in process, at least at GSK. And actually, I think this is something that we, as an industry, need to uh, align on in terms of what are the appropriate levels, uh, in what are safe levels, let's say, or clean levels, and uh, you know, come up with a set of standards that, um, that everyone signs up to, whether big companies, small companies, et cetera. Chuck, do you wanna Since add? I'm the scientist here, I just want to go back to assure you that we're a little more scientifically sophisticated, I think was portrayed, about, uh, uh, you know, the trade-offs between enlightened in, in self-interest. I, 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 you know, I hope it wasn't from my company, and I doubt it, and I know it wouldn't be. We are very sophisticated when it comes to understanding. And, and what I told you, the anecdote about, you know, shifting from small molecule discovery over to vaccines. So if you unfortunately have to go get cytotoxic chemotherapy, you might be able to you know, receive something in our pipelines or actually that we're about to have approved that actually doesn't impact your immune system. Or I could give you a vaccine for Staph aureus or Clostridium difficile, which are likely infections that you might get while you're in the hospital. So we have to follow the science and we will direct our science to you know, a holistic you know, a approach to the patients. I, I think you're oversimplifying and, and we're a bit more scientifically uh, sophisticated. So back to the supply chain though. I, I think that we really do need to get hold of this. Um, it, it will result in, if, if we were to pull back you know, the manufacturing, we already do a fair amount of manufacturing in Ireland and Puerto Rico and, and places. If we do pull it back, that will lead to higher prices you know, of the overall medicine in the end. So, but that being said, you know, we, you know, to, to have, uh, you know, antibiotic resistance to, to nearly every antibiotic currently in the street water in Mumbai is unacceptable. And if the supply chain is contributing to that, we have to get our hands around that. I'm going to push back. Mm -hmm. I, I'm glad you're doing um, vaccines, looking at immune modulators. I think phage cocktails may be part of the preventive answer. Mm -hmm. However, we already have 700,000 a year dying of yeah. AMR, 60,000 neonates a year in India. So, you know, you aren't as a group yet where we need you. But let's move on to the EU issue. Um, let me say from the UK perspective, we do welcome the Council's conclusions. Um, and we do think there are roles for the EU to play. Um, and we, in fact, we're going to have a meeting after this just discussing how we can support the EU in what they're doing in this area. But uh, Xavier, do you want to take that one? Yeah, well, on, on the Council conclusions, they were, they were endorsed by 28 member states. Uh, and uh, that's the key point. Um, 
I really think that, however, this is not about arguing whether there's an EU role or not. It's about showing what the EU can do. And this is our task. Uh, in the first place, within the Commission, to show that there is something that can be contributed by the EU. And I think there's many examples of that. And I'll give you just two examples as to how it can be very specific, and yet you require the goodwill, particularly of member states. One is veterinary medicines. We have a regulation on veterinary medicines now on the table. It's been discussed since 2014. We haven't advanced very much. Uh, the only reason for that is lack of political will on the part of member states. Um, if we manage to do what that regulation is meant to do, which is to give instruments for reducing and having a more prudent use of antibiotics in animals, we have done a real job and we have the competence for that. Same thing with benchmarks, monitoring, civilians. We have a lot of instruments that are legal, legally enforceable and should be used and should be used more. And the other example is something that is a particular relief for my own DG because it's DG health and food safety. Usually it's two strands that don't match very easily except perhaps on nutrition. On AMR, it's a demonstration that we should be looking at AMR on a one health way. Uh, Sally mentioned indeed the importance of bringing together not just WHO who does look at human health but also other institutions. Well, the EU is best placed there to set the example with a one health approach to how we tackle AMR. And I think it is also pretty striking two things. First, how much the veterinary side can learn from the medical side and vice versa. Both sides tend somehow to assume that the problem is on the other end and it's actually not true, it's both. And secondly, I think it's also interesting to see how difficult it has been to finally obtain, as we have, that there's an endorsement of the idea of a One Health Network of member states. Now, the idea is very simple. We must make sure that people benefit from each other's experience. What happened is that there was an extraordinary suspicion on the part of member states whose first question was, what is the governance of this? My answer is very simple. There's no governance. This is just a way to share. And I think that we have to break the assumption on the part of member states that it's better to do it by yourself than to risk the chance of shining a light on what you are doing. It's just as simple as that, and I think that any attempt to dress up the debate on EU and AMR under the angle of subsidiarity is either ignorance of or bad faith. Nobody is plotting here a takeover of power of member states on antimicrobial resistance, but there's a lot of scope for member states to do more with the support of the Commission. And I, I'm, I'm sure neither Jim nor Sally will, will refuse that, as long as we show what we can do, as opposed to preaching. Actually, I'm about to congratulate you for European Union uh, leadership, because I'm really pleased you're do taking this leadership role. It's very important. I'm going to make a couple of comments and then hand for the last word to Jim. I want to start by thanking Karen and Bruegel for setting up this excellent discussion and meeting. I want you all to remember that antibiotics are a common global, a global common good, and we do need to grapple with this, and every one of us has a role. And finally, I would say, before I hand over to Jim, that we have just agreed the Sustainable Development Goals, and while number three is all about health, and clearly effective antibiotics and, and antimicrobials more generally underpins that. If you look at it, antimicrobials that are effective underpin most of the SDGs. We will not get any of the SDGs and economic performance and pulling people out of poverty if we do not control 
drug-resistant infections. So it hangs on all of us to do something about it. So thank you, Karen and Bruegel. Jim, the last word. Uh, thank you, Sally. And let me reiterate my own thanks to uh, my friends at Bruegel uh, for us doing this, Karen. It's fantastic that you, you allowed us to do so. Uh, I'm going to make my closing comments in the context of this gentleman's question about why did we not have specific recommendations at the EU level. Uh, and the simple answer is because uh, of the global nature of it. For, for, for major effective uh, aspects, we need to have uh, global uh, agreements. As, as, as good as Denmark is uh, in terms of being the, from what we can see, the leading light in the appropriate agricultural use. Uh, worryingly, there is, has been some evidence recently that um, due to the transport of animals, there's colistin resistance uh, found in uh, agriculture in Denmark. Um, but with that in mind, um, especially as we in the UK now have to probably start thinking about a bit differently about our engagement with the EU, uh, there are, I'll leave you with four things that I think the EU could do. First of all, uh, I, 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 my mind, I'm, I'm very tired with all the things going on, but my, so my mind's sort of thinking a little bit dangerously. But I remember one of the most ridiculous things I wrote at Bruegel was uh, celebrating the power of the Eurovision Song Contest. Um, why, why not, uh, whether it's that entity or through UEFA, why not use that as for some kind of major EU-wide awareness campaign? Um, you could, that could be easily done. Uh, secondly, uh, on agriculture, uh, or adopt, the EU could adopt our recommendation of an EU-wide EU scale target reduction through all EU member states. Uh, we, as much as growth promotion is banned, uh, we don't believe it is effective as having an actual overall uh, milligrams per kilogram limit because people can easily get around the growth promotion thing and the EU could easily do that on its own. Thirdly, uh, the EU is very much in mind, as well as other developed countries, in having this uh, mandatory policy for diagnostics for how doctors prescribe um, antibiotics, the EU could easily do that. And then lastly, and we have thought about this specifically with respect to uh, if there are not other agreed mechanisms, the EU itself could apply pay or play or something else uh, for, for pharmaceutical sales in the EU market, which of course is a massive market for the pharmaceutical industry. But uh, it's, that is up to policymakers to decide on. Thank you very much. Terrific. Uh, thanks again to Jim, Sally, and the excellent panel.